Welcome to the Prescription Podcast. On this show, we present to you up-to-date facts on medical-related topics. We are your hosts. I'm Ian, a surgeon. I'm Zichin, a gastroenterologist. We're both practicing in Kuala Lumpur. We are on Apple and Spotify Podcasts. Please follow us for updates on new episodes. And today, we're still on, well, Season 2, and we're on Episode 2. And today, we'll be talking about cervical cancer. Well, today we actually have invited our friend, Dr. Lim Ai Wei, a consultant obstetrician and gynecologist currently practicing in Thompson Hospital, Kota Damansara. We're happy to have her to share with us on cervical cancer. Welcome, Ai Wei. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Lim Ai Wei. Nice to meet everyone. I'm sure it's be, it'll be an interesting topic because cervical cancer is, well, one of the key things that in women health, right, besides breast cancer, which we discussed last week. So this is kickstart things a little bit. I'm no gynecologist, but I've read that cervical cancer, while remains to be one of the main cancers in women, it has seen a decline in the States, right? What, how's that in Malaysia? What are the statistics like? Of course, if you follow WHO, there has seemed to be a decline in the cases in majority of the countries. Majority of the countries means country that has adapted certain amount of vaccines to prevent cervical cancer. Malaysia, of course, is one of them. We have adapted the fact that we have actually started that cervical cancer vaccine that is given. But sadly, in Malaysia itself, the cases has never really declined, probably because the screening in Malaysia is still not up to par like how the other countries are actually doing. So for the time being in Malaysia, it is still one of the top few, I would say one of the top three cancers among females that we gynecologists are still seeing. Yeah, probably we will cover on our prevention and screening somewhere down the recording. Probably we just uh, walk through with our audiences on what are the causes and the risk factors of cervical cancer. The main etiology or the causal factor that most of us can tell you it's actually due to a virus that is known as human papilloma virus. good 90% of the cases, I would say more than 90% of the cases are due to this virus. Even there are some papers outside that record all the way to 95 to 99% of their cases is actually due to this. So when you have this virus or you become a carrier of this virus, you carry a very high chance of getting cervical cancer. So one of the screening tools is obviously to screen for this virus. The other thing that we are seeing that has actually caused a slight slow in decline nowadays as how it's expected is, of course, the age of people has starting having sexual intercourse. We are seeing a younger generation starting having sexual intercourse at a very young age, which is one of the main causal factor, which is a young age of sexual intercourse. The other one that we are seeing, of course, is also multiparity. That means more and more people are actually having more children, probably because birth control is still like something that is not properly advocated in our country. Right. So one of the the other one is, of course, our social life, which is smoking. You know, smoking causes every single cancer. Same applies here. Smoking also increases the risk of cervical cancer. And of course, more younger generations are actually adapting this smoking and hence the cases are also going up. So main thing is HPV, sexually activity, multiple partners, more children, smoking. Wow, sounds like quite a bit to to tackle i mean i'm sure for the gynecologist to i mean you've talked about all these things it's not an easy way to tackle okay let's not give up hope i'm sure hopefully with some of this discussion we will be able to educate the public more and you know hopefully things will change so what are probably some of the symptoms that the patients present with 
I mean, one, you said, let's go back to the being the, the HPV carriers. Do they have any symptoms? Should they be looking out for something or should they get a blood test for that? Sadly, actually, there's no specific symptoms that we can see in cervical cancer, especially when it's related to that virus. It's not like where you have an influenza, where you have a cough or flu, or you have like a COVID, you have something like that, where you can actually, they present with something. It doesn't work that way in cervical cancers. One of the reasons why cervical cancer is on the rise also is because most of the cases are detected late. The symptoms are very vague. When we say vague, means most of the females will say that, oh, this is nothing. I have a few friends that had it so I, I know it will go away it takes time to go away so they just put their symptoms aside one of the most common symptoms that we see is abnormal pervaginal bleeding I mean to a lot of females if they have menses like twice a month or probably in between the, the, to the cycle of menses they have a little bit of bleeding probably they will just say ah, it's okay I'm just stressed out I have some hormonal imbalance or something like that and they will just put away the, that, the fact that it was actually abnormal but as time goes by, they tend to adapt themselves to that symptoms. And even worse, they feel that it is normal now. And then when they started, when they come over for screening for whatever reason it is that they decided, oh, probably I should get it checked. That is like probably seven, eight months down the line. And that's the time that we noticed it. The other thing, other than vaginal bleeding, is abnormal discharge. You know, most of the females, they do have some discharge, which as expected, again, they feel that it is normal. Until probably one of their friends tell them that, oh, I have this friend that went and checked and they found out to be cancer. So they will be like, oh, really? Let's go and check. And sadly, again, it comes out to be something abnormal. So very vague symptoms most of the time that we see among patients that present to us. So there is no specific symptoms. I will just say non-specific female symptoms that they feel it is normal, which that's why it's important to just get a routine check being done instead. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that sounds think, really difficult. <laughs> really difficult to identify what's normal, what's abnormal, you know, even yes. for, yeah, for most of us. You mentioned about discharge, right? What are the discharge or any discharge would or should raise an alarm or, or any specific, specific discharge. yeah. discharges that you want to highlight here yeah, to the listener that they should actually uh, raise an alarm and present themselves early? Okay, the most common discharge that they should raise an alarm is if you have bleeding after sexual intercourse. This is something that should not happen. You should not bleed after sexual intercourse. I mean, I don't think it's due to a tear or something like that following sexual intercourse that you should bleed every time you have it. So that is something that someone should pay attention to. The second one is if you are already menopause. I mean, like you're not supposed to bleed. And out of the blues, you suddenly have a little bit of a bleeding, irrespective whether when is it during urination or is it passing motion or it's just on a tissue during wiping. It should actually raise an alarm to you that if this is not supposed to be there. The other one is discharge that is of an unpleasant stench. It's foul smelling. Then it shouldn't be. It should be something worrying. Of course, the unpleasant stench is very vague. Something that you feel that it is not smelly might be smelly to a certain amount of people. That's the problem. So I know a lot of patients come to me and tell me like, doctor, I feel a very funny smell until my next door person can smell it. I'll be like, oh, really? 
So it's it's very hard to say, but of course, if something doesn't smell normal to you, please come and get yourself checked. That that will be better. Yes. Yeah. What's consistent, I think, with all our messages is one: really know yourself. I think a lot of times people don't bother to notice these little, little things. It's been consistent. I think with all the diseases, people don't bother until it becomes really, really bad. But I think you know we need to kind of put this PSA out there people please be very aware of your body you know not just I don't mean in a yoga sense of matter you know just uh, meditate and know what your body is but really be aware of your body functions and how it has changed I think that's been a consistent message throughout our podcast yeah anything that's not your norm I think just present yourself or seek advice early Right. So, yeah, I think that's very interesting out there, you know, to educate them again and put it out there. What are the common things that we encounter that actually is not normal, right? So we mentioned about screening earlier, you know, you said that yeah, when they present, it's always too late. So how do we go about screening here? When should we start and what are the types of screening uh, modality that's available up there? Actually, there is only one screening available for female cancers. Let's not talk about breast because... Some people classify breast as a female cancer because nowadays breast can even be a male cancer. That means when we talk about female organ cancer, mainly the female reproduction or the delivery parts itself, only cervical cancer has a screening tool, which is pap smear. Sadly, majority of the ladies don't do pap smear. You can walk about and ask anyone in your family that is a female. I can tell you clearly out of 10, at least nine of them will say they have never done it before or they have done it like more than five years ago. One of the reasons, it's painful, it's awkward. I cannot find a female doctor. I have no symptoms. And the, the list goes on and on, which is very saddening because nowadays in every medical checkup package, there will be a pap smear inside. So I would say, yes, there is a screening tool. It's called a pap smear. Some of us call it a liquid-based cytology nowadays. The newer version is called liquid-based cytology, but the methods of doing it is the same. So it's done, supposedly, if you follow guidelines, it's after the age of 25. Of course, you can get it done earlier, but most of us do not give treatment when you are too young. So once you reach the reach of age of 25, and if you are sexually active, irrespective of how many partners you have, you should start screening. It used to be yearly, which most of the females dreadfully see a tiny yearly they really hate it every year they have to come and spread their legs and show us so nowadays we will tell patients let's do it three year once not yearly because what happens now is there are a lot of large amount of evidence-based paper that show that even if I get something on the pap smear slightly something abnormal that is not cancer in order for it to turn cancer it will take like 10-15 years so I don't need to see you yearly I can see you three yearly just to detect that small minor changes. Three years is good enough for us, which I hope that most of the people take home this message that please see us every three years. It's not a lot of money either every three years if you calculate in long run. Just bear with me every three years for a few seconds. That's all I need from your life. That's all. <laughs> Just a very short second. <laughs> yeah, I mean... 
I understand. Yeah, I mean, been there, done that. It, it's not an easy thing. <laughs> anyway, yeah. But very importantly, when is the best time to do? I mean, you said about mm-hmm. age, right? In relation to the menstrual cycle, when will be the best time to do? Definitely not during menses because you are bleeding. We want a clean sample. It's okay if you're having some form of a discharge. That's okay because during the same setting when we are doing the pap smear, when we read the pap smear, we can read about the type of discharge that you are having at the same time, what is the infection that is actually ongoing? Nowadays, when we do a pap smear, we even ask patients if they want to screen for the HPV, which is a separate entity, actually. It's just an additional test that we add on. You can even screen for a large amount of other things, including certain amount of sexually transmitted diseases on that pap smear itself. So when we actually see patients nowadays in the clinic setting, like patients coming in just for poor vaginal discharge, we take the opportunity to just one set, one go, everything together. If that's necessary, you know, then, you know, it is something good to do and good to know and treat early yeah, before complications sets in. So, yeah, I guess the, the next question is, you know, if someone has gone through the screening or, you know, detects basically cervical cancer, what's next? in line for the patient? Okay, frankly speaking, most of the time when you do a screening, which is a pap smear, we, we do not detect cervical cancer or pap smear. It detects cell changes before it goes to cervical cancer. That means the non-cancerous part is detected on the screening, which is what we call CIN or cervical intraepithelial in situ. I mean, like this kind of a thing like that. So these are the one that turns cancer 15, 20 years down the line. But when we put in something, that means when we put in to look at the cervix itself and we see a big growth there or something that is growing on your cervix we no longer do a pap smear we will actually take a small pinch or a small bite using certain amount of instruments on that particular growth and we will usually say anything that grows on the cervix is usually going to be a 99% is going to be a cervical cancer so once we have that that thoughts that hey look there is something there and we take a growth we take a bite of it most of us don't even bother waiting to wait for the results because you will be pretty confident to say that, yes, it is going to be, you just want a black and white answer to it. So most of us will start going for CT scans and all to see if there is spreading to any parts of the body, like to your bladder or to your rectum, which is where you pass urine and pass motions to the side walls and worse if it goes all the way to the kidney, which if it goes all the way to the kidney, most of the time, even your kidneys will be impaired. They will show some abnormal blood results. Right. So if we see something down below, most of us we will just proceed with CT scans and things like that to actually look for site where it has actually spread, which will tell us what are the treatment how to treat after that. What Iway was actually telling us is to be diagnosed highly suspicious lesion that we see on the cervix and uh, we'll take a sample and then we will start proceed to stage them, right? Yeah. So I think there are stages of the cervical cancer and I think the management is somewhat different as well. Uh, maybe Iway, you would like to enlighten us a little on that? Of course, like every cancer itself, stage one means it's confined to that particular area. That means it's confined towards the service. Stage 1 usually is good because even stage 1 is divided whether it's just stage 1 under the microscope or on, on your eyes, bare naked eyes, you could already see the growth. 
if you are within stage one, which is just microscopic, that means on the microscope you can see, surgery is very simple. Most of the time, we can just remove the cervix and probably get away with it, right? That means if you are very young, you have no children, you are less than 40, you still have wishes to actually conceive, but or whatever samples that we take, we notice that it's cancer. The treatment can be just removing the cervix alone, let you have a child, then proceed by removing everything. When we say everything means including your uterus, which is where you bear your child, including your ovaries, which is where your eggs comes from, as a proper form of a staging itself. So stage one, most of them is confined within the cervix. If you are not planning to have a child anymore, it is definitely removal of all the female reproductive organs, everything out, right? But if you wish to have a child... It depends on how big your growth is. Probably we can just remove the cervix and save everything else. But in long term, you might still need that full removal later on. Okay, But when it reaches stage two, which most of the time it has gone into the bladder, there will be no immediate surgery. Usually you will need radiotherapy to actually shrink that, that little tumor, that means that little growth a little bit first before deciding whether you can go for a surgery. Stage two, stage three, stage four. Stage three is usually going all the way to the kidneys and stage four to other parts of the body. There will be no surgery three and four. Most of the time it's just radiotherapy to shrink the tumor and control the problem. When radiotherapy will be confined purely into the cervix, whereby they will put in some form of a metal rod kind of a thing, then they will put radiotherapy on, on that particular metal rod itself to shrink the tumor. Okay, so I think like all other cancers, it's very, very pertinent and important to catch it early because the treatment, well, in this case, if it's talking about curative, is confined to stage one and two, correct? Yep. Yeah, I just want to ask one question because now you mentioned about CIN earlier on. So what happens then if the, the patient is diagnosed with CIN? What what do they have to do next? All right. Okay. So CIN, as said, is actually not a cancer lesion. That means it's not cancer yet. It's prone to become cancer in the future. So most of us, when we actually check a pap smear, general screening itself, they will only do a pap smear. They won't do anything else. They will just come up with the results. They will just try either CIN1, CIN2 or CIN3 or even some some of the cancer, I mean some of the pap smear results do follow an old terminology. That means a, a, a old way of writing direct LSIU low seal or high seal, things like that. But most of us are using one CIN1, 2 and 3 now. Actually, CIN1 is low seal, CIN2 and 3 is high seal. This is how it was written is written nowadays. So when we see a CIN1, firstly we will see whether is there a HPV screening being done when they did the pap smear. A lot of us still don't do the HPV screening. Number one, top reason is it's because of the costing. If you do a HPV testing, it's probably you need to pay like what a two, three hundred ringgit extra just for that HPV testing alone. So most of the medical checkup package do not have that, that HPV testing. 
So what we usually do is if we see just CIN 1, then we will give a patient an option. One, it's either you just wait for six months or a year and repeat back again, which of course CIN 1 is still not cancerous yet. I said it takes like 10, 15 years to become cancer, but we do not know how long it has been there. That's the problem. So it's either you give an option of, okay, let's wait for one year. We repeat back again and see how it goes. That means whether it will self-resolve on its own or it will need some form of a more invasive process procedure, like for example, a coposcope. But of course, one year down the line, when you repeat, it is good to not just repeat a pap smear, do the HPV at the same time during that time, all right? Or you can give a patient a very open option. That means if you notice that she has certain amount of risks that carry her to be HPV positive, like for example, multiple sexual partners, she has sexual intercourse from the age of 14, 15, then she has multiple children. You might give the option of immediately asking her to do a coposcope. Coposcope means you put like a little microscope at that cervix to just visualize it very clearly. And if you see some abnormal areas itself, take a biopsy or a sample from that, which at the same time, you can do a HPV testing at the same time, at the same setting. So it's a very open option. So you can give an option a patient of doing a coposcope, or you can give a patient an option of just waiting, see how, but it depends on the patient itself. But I would say if the patient has no symptoms, she has no risk, then yes, you can give a patient of a one-year option. Some people will just say six months sometimes. Same with CIN2, CIN3. Otherwise, then coposcope. But two and three, most of us prefer to do a coposcope just to be sure we are not missing something. Mm. So basically, you're stratifying again and then deciding based on the risk and what mm. comes out in the previous uh, screening. Uh, yeah. And then you decide, okay. But what happens if this patient has not had HPV vaccine? Do you Would you encourage them to get the vaccine then? Okay, this is a very controversial topic that a lot of us have discussed it before because HPV vaccine actually is only advocated for people that have never had sexual intercourse, which we mean the 13, 14 teenage group kind of people. But of course, that, that group of people nowadays in Malaysia, they are vaccinated based on the Malaysian immunization guidelines. They are given in school, girls at the age of 13, 14. But what about those that have missed the boat like us like that in our 30s, 40s and things like that? Are we going to take the vaccine? You see, sexual intercourse carry a risk of you being HPV positive. Whether you take the vaccine or whether you don't take the vaccine, you need to be screened. That's something that everybody needs to know. It doesn't mean that if you take the vaccine, I'm not going to be screened anymore. I, I, I don't need to get myself checked and things like that. You see a lot of people just say, oh, I'll just take the vaccine. Now. I can prevent 90%. I don't need to be checked anymore. It doesn't work that way. So you still need to be checked. So if you have been already sexually active, you reach the age of 30 and above, actually it doesn't make a difference to take or not. But if you have not, you are not married yet, you although you already have sexual intercourse and you plan to get married probably at the age of like below 25, why not? You can still take the vaccine. But as said, a lot of people don't take it. One of the reasons is also it's not it's not cheap. Each jab can go up to like 500 ringgit where you need three jabs. It's around 1,005, but it's a lifelong immunity. So why not take the take the vaccine? But if you reach after the age of 30, we will just say up to you, but you still have to be screened, whatever it is. Don't just assume that taking it means, oh, I don't need anything anymore. It doesn't work that way. Mm. All right. Okay. Let me just get the facts right. Huh? So we were mentioning about National Immunization Program for the teenage girls. So that's under our national program. So that will be free for the school-going girls, 13, 14 years old, right? 
Yes. And the one that you're mentioning, three doses, 500 ringgit each are for the adults that's past this program, correct? Yes. And this right. program was initiated under the government, I think around 2010. Please correct me uh, if I'm wrong. Yeah, around that time? Uh, around yeah. 10 years ago, around that. Yes, All right. around 10 okay. years ago. Yeah. Okay. All right. So so at least we, we make it clear that, you know, our children, future kids who are coming up, you know, probably they will get it under the National Immunization Program, but not those that's already into adulthood, right? Yeah, that's right. But bear in mind, only girls get it boys don't get it yeah that was a very very informative but at least for me don't remember most of the cervical cancer really to be honest uh, not encountered <laughs> it but yeah that's a good refresher for me but I think just to quickly summarize the whole thing is that like all other cancers all other diseases basically there will be just probably slight changes in the body but more importantly is going for screening going for regular checkups having a regular doctor that you can trust and you believe can do the best for you that is I think the ultimate thing that for any kind of disease for every disease you should see a regular doctor and if there's any doubt at all go to the doctor get it sorted out ask a doctor and the earlier you get it sorted out, the better, because the chances of curing it, especially in cervical cancer, is it's better. Yeah, I think maybe the last bit before we end is, Iwe, are you aware of any other local support group or association, you know, that, that provide peer support to the mm. cancer patients? Yeah, of course. I mean, if you, if you are having any form of cancer, there is always a lot of support groups available whereby there are a lot of people that share their experience about how they have gone through it. I personally have seen a lot of cervical cancer survival patients because after chemotherapy, they will come to us for regular smears again. I have seen even, I would say, 60-year-old ladies surviving all the way five years where their grandchildren bring them for smears and all. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Yes, of course, there are a lot of support groups. A lot of patients are willing to share their experience, like how breast cancer is. People are more open up nowadays to let them know, look, I had it. I went through it. I fight through it. So you can do it at the same time instead of just giving up hope on yourself. The mindset has changed and uh, every people are a bit more open now. Yeah, I think mm. so probably partly thanks to the social media as well, the availability mm. and easy accessibility. And before we end, I think, Aiwei, any take-home message from you to the audience? The only take-home message I always tell people is as a female, there is one cancer that can be detected early other than breast cancer. Of course, breast cancer, you need to check yourself every day while you are actually showering, which is not hard. The other one is cervical cancer, which you cannot check yourself. You just need to come and see me or see any gynecologist every three years just to get a pap smear done. That's it. Or you can just get it done in any medical healthcare screening. It's readily available nowadays. Don't wait for symptoms to come. And if you are planning to get married and you do not recall whether you have actually taken a HPV vaccine before or not, please just walk into any clinic. Any clinic has it nowadays. Just tell them I want the vaccine to be done. It's three doses over six months. Don't worry if you accidentally get pregnant while you are taking the vaccine, it's perfectly safe for pregnancy anyway. So it will not harm the child. So please at least take the vaccine to try to prevent. If there is something that can prevent you from something that can actually happen in future that will cause you more problems and more financial problems, why not just take it? Mm. Yes. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Aiwei, for that talk. I think it was really, really informative. And I think as, you, as per usual, if any of you have questions, do feel free to email us at prescriptionpod.com. P-R-E-S-C-R-I-P-T-I-O-N P 
pod at gmail.com and we will try to answer as best as possible. Uh, I think till then, thanks very much, Highway, for joining us and thank you for listening in. We'll see you the next episode. Thank you, Highway. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.